have one thought on my mind. It really, I, in, in essence, I want to begin with God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> now, I don't categorically agree with that. As a matter of fact, I disagree with it. But there's a truth in it that we ought to often miss. Amen? There's a certain kind of person that is going to see great things happen in their life. And by definition, that person is not someone who is waiting on God or anyone else to do it. Nor is that person someone who believes in their own abilities and is going to do it in their own strength. So it's this combination of two polar opposites. It's somebody who knows they're completely inadequate and they cannot do it on their own strength. But it's also someone who knows it's got to be done and God is only going to help when they put themselves in the fight. Do you understand? There's something that I think we all battle with. Oh God, help me. Oh God, do this. Oh God, do that. He's not going to. What you need to say is, God, what is your will? What is your will? What do you want to happen in this circumstance? And then fling yourself at that call with all your might. And in your inadequacy, God's strength will be made perfect. And he will perform the miracle through you. There is no passivity sitting back. Okay, God, do it. Do it your way. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. person who says, God, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But then by the same token, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And who approaches it with that absolute, it's going to happen mindset. It's going to happen for that person. Mountains are going to be lifted up and thrown into the sea. But they're going to be lifted by the strength of that person's own faith. So you say, okay, I want that anointing, God. I want that power, God. Amen. And you say, okay, I'm going to do it, God. And as soon as you say that, you know the temptation is to start to get bold in the flesh, right? Start to flex those muscles of human ability. As soon as that happens, pride immediately displaces God. And he says, oh, you want to do it on your own? Go ahead. And we have to say, stop and say, okay, God, I can't do this, but I've got to do this. Would you please help me? He gives grace to the humble. But what is grace? What is grace? Is grace, is it some... Magic? It's the energy that you lack. It's the power that you don't have. It's the endurance that we don't have. When you're praying and you're going through your day and you feel tired and stretched and frazzled and, and you're going about things and it's not going right and everything just keeps unraveling. And somebody comes in and begins to speak something to you that would address that problem. Grace comes to you 
through those words. And if you're proud, you say, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't know why you look at it that way. And so you just shut the door. You close the shutters on that grace that would pour into your life. But if you're truly humble, you say, Lord, is, is this it? Amen. And you listen, and grace comes to you as a word, as a pat on the back, as a helping hand. It comes to you in a song. It comes to you in a zephyr of the Holy Spirit when you just whisper a prayer. One of the greatest writers of the 20th century is no doubt Leo Tolstoy. He's written a lot of stuff and most of what he wrote was tainted by his worldliness because it was prior to his conversion in God when he truly came to believe in Jesus. And he actually, he actually dismissed it all and said it was garbage, much of it. Amen? But he once said that the greatest work that he ever composed was a story called Martin the Shoemaker. How many of you have read Martin the Shoemaker? Oh good, there's one or two who haven't read it. There was a man who had a dream, and in the dream, God came and whispered in his ear, just like the angel did in the ear of Joseph, and said, Martin, Martin, this very day I will come and visit you. And so he rose early in the morning and he swept his shop and put everything in order. Reading his Bible. God, when is it going to happen? When are you going to come? And all of a sudden he heard crying out in the street. A boy had stolen an apple and the woman was angry who had lost the apple to his thievery. And she was frustrated and hitting at him and he was crying and cold and and so Martin goes out there and settles the issue and tries to fix things up and has the boy apologize to the granny. And he goes back in and he's a little worried that he might have missed his appointment with God. He goes about his work. He reads his Bible. Once again, he hears whimpering. So he goes out there and this little baby is, is being held tightly in a threadbare shawl by a woman who has no warmth. So he says, come on inside, and he talks with her, and he's just a friend to her. The sun is halfway through the sky, and he's still anxious. God told him he was going to come, and he hasn't showed up yet. Then as the evening light starts to lengthen, there's a knock on the door, and it's the woodcutter, this old man, and He's just there to see if Martin the shoemaker wants to help chop wood that day. But when he talks with him, he realizes the guy just wants some company. And, and he talks for a while and he warms himself and he gets a little fellowship and he gets a little companionship. And toward the end of the day, he's tired and, and he puts his weary hands, weary face in, in his tired hands and he's resting there on his bench and the thought in his heart is, Lord, why didn't you ever come to me? And the Lord says, Martin, I came to you three times. And you were ready for me every time. I came to you in the need of the boy and the granny. I came to you in the need 
of the woman and her cold child. I came to you in the need of companionship in the woodcutter. Amen. And he realizes that he didn't miss his appointment with God after all. That's a paraphrase. But that's an example of someone who is humble enough to receive grace. Obviously, it's more a story of someone giving grace. But it's also someone receiving grace because the thing he sought after more than anything else that day was an encounter with God. And he encountered God in each one of those circumstances. If he had not had an anticipation, a readiness, he would have treated them differently. But he was on his best behavior. And consequently, he didn't miss his appointment. Grace is not abstract. It's not ethereal. It's not mystical. It's not magical. Grace is when you come into this meeting and you sit down and the Word of God starts addressing the anxiety of your heart and saying, I have an answer for you. And if you have a lowliness of mind to receive it, to run out and help, that grace, even when it comes in its most lowly form, then you are someone who is going to be empowered by God. You are someone who is going to feel lifted on the wind of God's Spirit and carried by a power that is not your own. But if you are someone who can't respect those little things and has too high a mind to even notice some of those things, well then you're not going to receive the grace that you so thirst for. I want to ask you what you think is the primary channel through which God dispenses grace into my life, into your life. Through prayer, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace, right? They waited in Jerusalem so that they would be endued with power from on high. So I would say it's the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a couple options and you pick one and tell me what you think. It's the primary channel through which God dispenses grace into our lives. Okay? Uh, studying the Word of God. Um, pray. Uh, rest. Um, why did everybody start laughing there? Hey, my Bible says, the Lord giveth his beloved sleep. Um, friendship and connections with other people in the body of Christ. Um, songs, singing and praise, rejuvenation. Is that a couple examples of grace? Paul and Silas got grace by praise, right? So that's one. Amen? King David got grace by praying, so that's, that's another. Amen? And I, I'm throwing an, uh, another one out there. I'm saying rest. God give you recreation. Jesus found grace when he, when he, it says Jesus withdrew from there and went to recoup elsewhere. So maybe there's a place for that. I've, I've found grace that way. Um, and I'm, I'm, as I'm also throwing in um, 
grace through connections with individual people. Okay? So is that four examples of ways that grace comes to us? Can anybody think? Oh, the written word, five examples. Does everybody agree that those are five pretty basic examples through which grace comes to us? Amen? What we're really saying is it's five basic ways that the Holy Spirit lends us that dunamis that we can't live without. Would you agree with that? Because it's called the Spirit of Grace. Does everybody agree with that? Now, which of those five would you say is the primary means through which God dispenses his indispensable grace in your life? Anybody else want to pick one of those? So are you picking one of those ways? I'm asking for a primary of all those five. Maybe it's equal. Maybe that's your answer. I think through the individual members of the body. You think so? It's in my personal life. That's how it seems like it's come to me more. Amen. Anybody else? Through the Holy Spirit, I believe. Obviously, that's what it is. It's the spirit of grace. But what is the primary means, the method? Through which the Holy Spirit gives you grace. Is that prayer? Communion in the Spirit? Is that what you're saying? Okay. So we have two, at least two clear different ways. Anybody else? Yes. So, but how does God give that grace? Through what channel, through what means does God dispense that grace? What about this scripture that Kevin just brought up? 1 Peter 4.10. What does that say? I believe that's what you're referring to, right? Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. What did you, did you, did we just miss something that Peter just said to us? He said that the time of trouble, the time of the end is coming near. And he told us to pray, but then he said something above all, above everything else. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now we're saved by grace and that would necessarily mean the taking away of our sins, right? That is what salvation is, isn't it? And he just said, above all, maintain the love between brothers. So I'm going to go ahead and tenure that as the primary means. Okay? Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be generous is what it literally is. Be generous with one another without being grudging in that generosity. We can all understand what he means, right? Verse 10, as each one has received 
a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. One who's articulating the sounds of God's voice. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength or the dunamis which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The primary means through which God brings saving grace into our lives is the fellowship of His people. People who need to have prayed, people who need to sing, people who need to stay filled with God's Spirit. But you are going to receive concrete grace more through people than by any other means. Amen? That's why John said, love of the brethren was foremost also. That's why he said, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, covers us from all sin. Amen? Cleanses us from all sin. Is that not a parallel to what he's just said? Above all, have fervent love for the brethren, and love covers a multitude of sin? Amen? Amen. Love. The love of the brethren. The fellowship with the brethren. That's where it's happening. Amen? Now look at this passage. If we want to know how the spirit of grace is supposed to act in our life, 1 Corinthians 12. What compelled God to incarnate himself in human flesh? To identify with us completely. To know every temptation. To suffer every wrong. To bear in his flesh the iniquities of us all. What compelled God to come out of the abstract, to bridge the distance and incarnate himself in the man Christ Jesus. What, what compelled him to do that? Love. What scripture do you give as reference? For God so loved the world. That's why he did it. Because he loved us. Amen? Out of his great love with which he loved us. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So what topic are we going to be on when we start this chapter? Throughout this chapter, we're on spiritual gifts, and Paul does not want us to be ignorant. There's a reason he doesn't want us to be ignorant. This is why. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Something about idols used to cause them to go somewhere, to be led somewhere. Amen? And gifts in the body are supposed to replace what idols used to be in our pagan lifestyles. Amen? It used to be that you would see something in a magazine and you said, Oh, I want that. And you were led astray by that dumb idol. 
But now you're supposed to see something godly and holy in the body of Christ, a spiritual gift. And it's supposed to lead you, not astray, but onward in your walk with God. Amen? It used to be that you would hear something. It would inspire you and you'd say, oh, I want to be like that. But now you're going to see a Christian living as he ought. You're going to see an Apostle Paul and you're going to say, I'm going to follow him as he follows Christ. Are you with me? So he says, I want, I want to talk about spiritual gifts. They work the same way your dumb idols used to work, except they're for real. And they're taking you not astray, but upward into Christ Jesus and your salvation. It's very important. Listen, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So he says, I want to talk about spiritual gifts. You can't be ignorant of this. And the reason is because you cannot claim that Jesus is your Lord apart from this manifestation of the Spirit in the gifts of the body. Amen? What was Jesus? What was Jesus? He was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among many brethren, right? He was the manifestation of the God who is invisible. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. Amen? Jesus was the incarnation of that invisible God. He made it tangible. He made it audible. He made it right there for us to feel and hear and obey. Amen? He incarnated. He made it flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Amen? But then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? And Paul is saying here that you, if you're still ignorant of spiritual gifts, then your, your claim that Jesus is your Lord is not an authentic claim. Now we know people can make an unauthentic claim that Jesus is their Lord, can't they? Why do we say that? Because in, in Matthew 7, in the 20s of those verses, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, what? And does it equal salvation for those people? Absolutely not. In Titus 1, Paul says, by their words they confess Him, but by their deeds they deny Him. Being worthless sons, unprofitable for any good work. Amen? You with me? So Paul is making it clear here that spiritual gifts are paramount because Jesus can't be your Lord if the Spirit is not exerting its reign in your life through various gifts. That's what he's trying to say to us. And so he's going to talk about the Lordship of Jesus, the Lordship of the Spirit, and then he's going to reiterate that all the gifts in the body are the exertion of that Spirit, that Lordship. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. He says, I've, I've presented you with a dilemma. You need the Spirit in order to say Jesus is Lord. And he says, and here's the solution. There are gifts that bring that Spirit. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, 
but the same God who works all things in all persons. Now look at this. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now what was Jesus? He was the manifestation of the Spirit. The Bible tells us God is Spirit. And no one has seen God at any time. But Jesus was the manifestation of that Spirit. Does anybody want to tell me what, what the definition of manifestation is? Yes. To make visible, to reveal, to unveil, a manifest. You know what a manifest is, right? It's to come out and say exactly what you believe or what, what's, what's required. So whatever was ambiguous and unknown about God, Jesus was the manifestation of that God. What is the body of Christ? Jesus was the manifestation of that God, and in that one man Christ, all the fullness of God dwelt. He had all the gifts. He had prophecy and he had teaching. He had evangelism and he had shepherding. He had apostleship. He had miracles. He had healings and resurrections. He had helps and he had wisdom. He had it all. Amen. In him dwelt all the fullness of the God in bodily form. Amen. But in the body of Christ, we have the same challenge as he had. Paul just said that the body of Christ is supposed to be the place where the invisible God is manifested, is incarnated, where the word becomes flesh and still dwells amongst us. So if you don't have spiritual gifts, you don't have God. You have an abstract God. You have an unknown God. But if that God would become known and you would be able to say, that's my Lord then it's going to be because there's a body of people who this one is this way and that one is that way. Each one manifests the spirit that God has put within him. None is an incarnated God. Not, in, not a single individual is the whole manifestation. But put together is the mosaic of the invisible God. His face shining upon us. It's not an insignificant thing. It's a huge thing. We don't have grace unless we have relationships with other people. We don't, have, we don't have the spirit. Your individual portion is going to dry up. It will be like the Dead Sea that turns to salt because it has nowhere to flow. You can't just get the spirit and think that's enough. What God is wanting to do in this last age, this last day, is to bring together all things that are in Christ what is so unique about this fellowship and what needs to go into all the churches that are for real across the world is this, that there is a real body of Christ, that there are real people who are not ashamed of the truth, who will manifest the spirit that God has put inside of them and that we will honor those gifts and seek out those gifts and receive the grace from those gifts. That's the miracle. What does Paul say? In Ephesians 1, 23, he's been speaking about Jesus and how 
Jesus' whole purpose was reconciliation. But then he gets down to the, the 21, 22, and 23, and what does he say? What, is, what does he say there, brothers and sisters? Can somebody help me? Whose feet? He put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. Now, he is in heaven, and he is the head of the body, right? Amen. But we are his feet because we're still on this earth. We're the connection between heaven and earth. We're the place where people can come and embrace God and find an exit from this world under judgment. His feet are still on the earth. Amen? How blessed are the feet of them who bring good news. The gospel of peace. Amen? So he put all things in subjection under his feet. Carry on. And gave him, that is Jesus, to be head over all things. What? To the church. The Amplified says a headship exercised in and through the church. Which is his body. Now what does it say in the next verse, the next line? Which is his body. The church is Christ's body. Comma. Which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a stupendous statement, is it not? It's really terrifying. What he's saying, whatever is of God in the world is going to be known in the church. He's only filling the church. He's only reigning in the church. He's not reigning over Caesar's kingdom. He's not reigning over the polities of man the societies of man, the economies of man, he's only reigning in the church. Whatever of God you're ever going to see, you're going to see in the church. And what Paul tells us is that if people are unwilling to give those gifts or to be humble enough to receive those gifts, God will remain unmanifested. He will remain invisible. He will remain distant. He will remain unknown. And if salvation is to know him, that's a very scary thought, is it not? Are you with me? We are under mandate to become an authentic, outshining expression of Christ, of God. Because we're all that is ever going to be known of God in the world. I don't mean just in this room. You know I'm not talking about that. But I mean the true body of Christ. The true anointed ministry of the gifts of the Spirit. It's all that will ever be known of God in the world. And that's why there's so little known of God. Because the church is dead. But it's not dead here. And God don't let us let it, don't let us let it die. Amen? Amen. The grace of God 
is every time your brother or your sister brings a word to you that takes your prayers and makes them concrete, that takes your hopes and spells them out in a step of obedience that will bring promise. Amen? That takes your feelings and your longings and shows a way. That's the grace of God. Hallelujah. That's the grace of God, and without that, you cannot be saved. So God, help me to remember and humble myself to receive that grace. Help me to humble myself to receive my brother. What did Jesus say? I think he might have confirmed everything I've said tonight when he said something much easier to understand. Whoever receives you receives me. We would see Jesus. Well, see your brother. We would receive Jesus. Well, receive your brother. Whose ever sins you forgive? Amen. I also forgive. Paul said the same thing. Amen. The humility is all about how easily we can open our hearts to that grace that comes in human form. It's not an abstraction that God just doesn't like to give help to anybody, but if he sees somebody really down in the dumps, he gives grace to the humble. That's not what humility is, and that's not why God gives grace to the humble. It's just that God is trying to give grace all the time, and there are some people who are small enough to appreciate it. And the seed falls into good soil, and it bears much fruit. I want to just bring all this together right now. God is going to ask something of you that you are not prepared, you are not able to obey. But you better throw yourself at that in obedience. And in the battle, on the battlefield, you'll become what the need demands. But that becoming, that empowerment of God is going to come most often through people, through your brothers and your sisters. It is going to come in various forms. It's going to come as a, a note, a letter. It's going to come as a word. It's going to come as just your friend sitting there. It's going to come as you helping someone who you think needs you. But like Martin the shoemaker, you're going to find out it was a visitation from God. It's going to come in a meeting. It's going to come in a touch of the hand. It's going to come in a song. It's going to come in a word. But it's going to come through people. What did Peter say to the man at the gate beautiful? Silver and gold we do not have. But what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now when Peter said that to the man, the man did not have the ability to walk. But when the man opened his mind and heart to the possibility that God would give him that ability if he tried, instantaneously he had the ability. And he got up and was dancing and praising God. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.